Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid himself from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you not eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out man, and in the east of the Garden of Eden he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard to the tree of life. Well, good morning, everybody. God can take tragedy, and he can make good things come from it. The song that we just sang, It Is Well, um, is a song that was born out of tragedy, and I couldn't help but think as we were singing it, and I could hear all of you singing and your voices being lifted up to the Lord, how he was glorified and honored in that moment. And uh, that song, if you don't know the background, was written by a man who had lost almost everything. His, he was quite a prominent lawyer and wealthy man, and he had lost his son, his only son, to scarlet fever at the age of four. And then uh, the Chicago fire came and wiped out most of his wealth. And then he sent his family, his wife and his four daughters and their nanny across the ocean. They were all supposed to go on a family trip to Europe. 
And he couldn't go at the last minute. And so he stayed back. And as the ship sailed across the sea, um, it sunk. And it sunk within 12 minutes. And it took the life of uh, his four daughters when it sank. And they found his wife adrift, on a, unconscious on a piece of wood in the middle of the ocean. And so this is a man who had lost everything. And yet in his great sorrow and in this tragedy, he penned the words, it is well with my soul. And so the words that you just lifted up to the Lord were penned in tragedy and through tragedy. And yet God is able to take good things, uh, bad things and make good things happen from them. That pain and that suffering that that man and that family endured has brought countless people across the globe for over the past hundred or more years to praising God's name. And you were a part of that this morning. And so I think that's really amazing. The story that we have this morning in Genesis chapter 3 is a story of tragedy. This is, this is where everything changed for humanity. And this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis in a series that we've titled The Beginning. And um, when we look at Genesis, we see the beginning of the uh, creation, the creation of the world. We see the beginning of our relationship with God. And we see what this world was created to be. But then in Genesis, we also see what we have in the world today, which is not what the world was originally created to be. And there's this tragedy that happens in chapter 3. But Genesis is full of details that God wants us to know. So we're going to look at that tragedy this morning. And we're going to look at the details in it because the author of Genesis, and indeed God himself, wants us to know what these things are. And so we're going to take some time this morning and we're going to study that. There is this, uh, uh, the ancient Hebrew writers wrote stories differently than we write stories today. If we write stories today and when I tell you a story today, I fill it full of detail because I want you to be able to picture it in your mind. I want you to have like a running narrative, a play-by-play -play going on in your head as I tell a story. And so if I were to tell you a story about perhaps the most 10 most ridiculous moments of my life that happened about 20 years ago, I would tell you about uh, how I had just started doing construction work. And I didn't have a lot of money, and I didn't have a lot of tools and a lot of equipment, but as I slowly gained uh, you know, clientele, uh, the jobs got bigger and bigger, and I had to grow with it. But this one particular job that I got was to tear down this fence about a block from the house that I lived at, and I was to tear this fence down and build a new fence for these people. But I didn't have a truck to, throw the, to haul the old material to the dump. And so I asked my grandfather if I could borrow his brand new forest green Dodge Dakota. And he was an old hip farmer, had a V8 engine in it, had sport written on the side. I had no idea what grandpa was doing driving that truck. But he, but he let me borrow this, this, this cool Dodge Dakota truck so that I could haul my, this material to the dump. And so I, I backed it into the driveway and I loaded, I cut the fence down and I put the big panels of the fence in the back of the truck till they reached the top of the truck bed. And I was just about done with that load and I started throwing some four by four posts across the top of the truck bed just to kind of even out the load and finish the job off. And as I let go of this one four by four post, it started to drift off to the side and I was like, oh no, it's going to fall off the truck. And I look and, and just as I look up, I see it hits the rubber. You know, there's that rubber stripping that goes around the window in your vehicle, the back window. So this weather stripping, it hits the edge of that weather stripping and I hear this... Oh, that was an interesting noise. And I look up at the back window, which was all one piece. There was no sliding window in it. And the entire window had honeycombed, broken. 
And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. I, like, I'm barely making any money as it is, and now I have to replace the back window of my grandfather's new truck. How am I going to tell them that I did this? And in my, in my dismay, I stepped backwards. And I stepped right onto a board with a nail in it, and it went right through my shoe and into my foot. And I'm like, ah, ah, and I'm, you know, and, and, I, and so I hobble over to the side of the truck, and I sit down in the driver's side, and I pull off my shoe, and I'm like, that was a rusty nail. It punctured my foot real good. It was bleeding good, and I knew I had to go get a tetanus shot. So I was like, ah, great. You know, now I got to deal with, I got to strap this load down because now I got to drive to the hospital and get my foot all fixed up and it's bleeding everywhere. So I throw my shoe on and I stand up and I shut the door to the truck behind me, probably with some extra force because of my annoyance. And I slam the door and the back window falls out of the truck and now it's broken all over the place. This is the most... 10 most ridiculous minutes of my life, but we didn't have kids then. Now we have kids, and every moment is like that. <laughs> but this is how we tell stories. We fill them full of details so we can understand what the person is talking about, but that's not how they told stories, you know, when they were telling them in the past. Ancient writers preferred to share few details with us because what they would do is the absence of detail would draw our attention to the details that they did give us. And so when we see details in Genesis and in, in, in the Bible, the author is trying to draw our attention to something because they want us to know something, something important about the text. An example of this might be all of us could look at a yearbook of Jesus's graduating class, but none of us would be able to pick out Jesus. The text barely gives us any details about what Jesus looks like. But if we saw Jesus at work in our church or in the, in the, in the community at large, we would be able to recognize him by the way that he acted, by his nature, by his character, and by the things that he did. Because those are the important details that we were given in the text. That is what the author wants us to know about Jesus. So we wouldn't necessarily know what he looks like, but we could pick him out of a crowd by the way he looks, so, or by the way he acted. So as we look at Genesis 3 today, we are going to focus on some of the details we are given. The writer has given us these details, and so we don't want to miss what he is trying to share with us here. So for us, Genesis 3 describes the fall of humanity. And as I've already shared, this was kind of a pivotal moment in human history. This is where it all went wrong for us. Up until this point, everything was good, or it was very good. But not in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, it all changes. And we could talk this morning about if the, app, or, you know, if the fruit that they ate was an apple, or if the serpent that was you know, the deceived Eve, if, if that was indeed a serpent that crawled on the ground, or if it was like this animal that had legs, and then eventually the legs were, were gone because God cursed it. We could talk about these things. And they would be fascinating to talk about and discuss, or how old the earth is, and all that stuff. We could chat about that. But when we do that, we're missing the main point of what the author is trying to tell us in Genesis chapter 3. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the three timeless truths that I believe that we see in Genesis chapter 3. First, we see that there is an opposing force in the world. We are introduced in this passage of Genesis chapter 3 to something very different there's a shift in Genesis chapter 3, and we are introduced to the fact that there is an opposing force in the world that we now have to live with. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and it's not going to be up on the screen, but you can follow along in your Bibles or on your tablet. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the, any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Even in this first sentence, the author has given us several details that they want us to know about this serpent. 
This is the first discussion about evil. And so as we look at the serpent and we study the serpent and we look at these details, we see the points about evil that the author is trying to make. First, we see that the serpent is crafty. A serpent is crafty. The Hebrew word is arum. And what, what it means is shrewd or subtle or sly. It can mean prudent. Or, or even sensible in a good, when we're using it in, in the good way, but in the negative way, it means cunning. And so there's this idea in the sense as they use this word crafty, that the serpent is really, really good at getting what he wants in life. And we're going to find out really soon in this passage that what he wants is to, to destroy us. And he's really good at doing that. And that's an important detail for us to know as we approach the text and as we live today, thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, because Satan is a formidable foe for us. He is an enemy. And the author wants us to know that. We are being warned here that, the, that with the serpent in the picture now, Genesis 1 and 2, he wasn't there, but, but we see him now in Genesis 3. With the serpent in the picture, our lives are not going to be the same. There is going to be somebody who's working against us now, from now on. And we see that played out in scripture. There is an evil force that's active in the world, and he's trying to destroy anything that bears the image of God. That's Satan's job. Satan doesn't want to bring glory to God. He doesn't want us to see the things in nature that God has created to point us to God in the relationships God has created. He doesn't want people to see God in us. And so Satan is out there working against us. John 10 says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And his work hasn't changed from that day in, that gar in the garden to today. He is still doing the same things. His crafty work is still at work around all of us right now. His first words to Eve in the garden were a distortion of the truth. He said, did God really say that you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? Well, God doesn't, didn't say that at all. As a matter of fact, there was tremendous freedom in the garden for the, for the Adam and Eve, for humanity to eat anything that they wanted. As a matter of fact, you know, there's just one tree that they weren't allowed to eat from. And the serpent is now getting her to think in such a way as he's trying to get her to think about the one thing that she doesn't have. That's how the crafty one works. He was able to make Eve look at that tree and go, oh, look at that one tree. That one thing that you're not allowed to have, God isn't really that good if he's, he's hiding something there. Well, he was hiding something, but it was for our benefit. The craftiness of Satan is why people cheat on their spouses. Satan is able to convince them that there's something better. Oh, they're like this and they're bad. This one's better. Satan is able to get us to look beyond the goodness that we have right here and try to make this work to convince us that there's something better beyond that. It's why we cheat on our taxes. And we try to say, oh, well, you know what? Yeah, like, uh, I don't want the government to have that money because I'll do better with it. Than we. So then we've kind of fudged the numbers a little bit. Well, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be honest and trust that God will provide even if we have to be honest and give them all of the money that they're asking for. But Satan's able to convince us that for some reason we need to be just a little bit dishonest because we'll do better with the money. It's also why we can never seem to be satisfied and why we're always looking elsewhere to find fulfillment because he's, he's crafty. There's something better out there. 
Satan loves to mix the truth with lies. And we see this at work in our world everywhere. We can see him at work today in, in lots of philosophies. Here's one. The world is telling us that we need to look inside of ourselves to find ourselves, to discover who we are. And there's some truth in that. We need to figure out who we are. We need to determine, though, in Christ who we are and what he wants us to be doing with our lives and what he created us for. We're broken individuals and broken people, and the story of the fall tells us that, and it teaches us that. So if we look inside ourselves, as the world tells us to do, as the craftiness of the serpent teaches us to do, guess what we find? Brokenness. Because God doesn't exist in our hearts until we receive him. So we need to be looking to find ourselves outside of ourselves. We need to be looking to God. We need to be looking to Jesus to find out who we are. And so Satan is able to twist that. He takes something that the world is looking for, trying to discover our purpose in life, and he twists it and goes, oh, look inside. That's where it is. That's why we see all this brokenness around us, because we're looking inside to find wholeness. It ain't there. It only exists in God, and he is not in our hearts until we become believers in Jesus Christ. Moving on, we also see in verse one, the serpent is different than anything else that was created He's different than anything else that God created. His nature is different. And we can recognize him not necessarily by the way he looks, but by his nature displayed in the world. You know, we don't find his particular nature described or seen in anything else. The serpent's nature is to destroy, as I've said, things that were created in the image of God. You know, and you can contrast, the, the serpent might have looked like other serpents in the garden. It wasn't like he was a unique looking being necessarily, but his nature was far different than the snake that was slithering next to him. Other beings are not created like the serpent was created. Cows walking through a field are just concerned about eating grass and enjoying the day. It's not like there's sharks swimming in the ocean that see a human and they're like, oh, now, am I going to eat his leg or am I going to convince him not to believe in Jesus? Choices, choices. That's not how it works. The shark just wants to eat your leg. That's how it goes, right? The serpent's nature is different than that of the shark. The serpent's nature is different than anything else that was created. And we can recognize the serpent in the world, not necessarily by how he looks, but by how his nature is displayed. In his, so we can see this at work in our lives and in the world as well. And so we need to be on guard for those kind of things. For Eve, he tempted her with the idea that she could have something better and something different. If she just would grab hold of her own destiny, if she would just disobey God, there's something more out there. He said to the woman, who's, uh, when the woman saw the fruit in Genesis 3, verse 6, we read, the woman saw the fruit on, uh, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. In Genesis 2, chapter 9, we're also given a description of the trees in the garden. And it says this, it says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. The trees were the same. There was not necessarily a different looking tree. It's not like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was this glorious, magnificent tree. It was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye just like every other tree in the garden. And yet somehow this crafty being, because of his nature, was able to convince Eve 
That one's better. That one's different. And we see that when, he, when she goes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. It really wasn't that good of a deal. <clears throat> what other creature tries to convince us that God isn't trustworthy, true or good, or like, like he hasn't given us all the information and we need to get out there and we need to decide for ourselves and make a better decision. There is no other being in creation that does that. It is just the serpent and his work. So for us, no matter what the person looks like or what the philosophy of life they're trying to convince us of is right, if they're trying to harm those that are created in the image of God in any way, or if they're degrading or changing something that God has established as good in the world, we know who is at work. We see this everywhere. And we need to protect ourselves from that kind of thinking because that is Satan twisting the truth. There's often a little bit of truth mixed in, right? But he twists it just enough that it gets us off track. <clears throat> the third thing that we see in the first verse is that despite this being being crafty and having a different nature, that this is in fact just another created being. Its existence is the result of God's created process. And that means that, that the serpent even though it's powerful, even though it's crafty, even though its work has been lifelong as far as humanity is concerned, the serpent will not win at the end. The serpent is still under the sovereign control of God. And we need to recognize that at the end of the day, God is in the, the one who is in control. The world is messed up. It is fallen. It is broken. And the serpent is at work, but God is still in control. And that is a truth that we need to bank on and we need to hold on to. The amazing thing is, is that one day the crafty serpent, the Bible tells us that those who believe in Jesus, they're not going to have to deal with the crafty serpent anymore. There is a future for us without the serpent and without his work there. Isn't that an awesome thought? Finally, we're going to be able to sit back and relax and that nature that we've spent our entire lives fighting against, battling against, struggling from and being annoyed with. That's not going to be there. That is our future in Christ one day, in heaven, not being pulled in different directions. Won't that be amazing? It'll be like heaven because that's where we'll be. That brings us to the second timeless truth of Genesis chapter 3, and that is harmony was destroyed. <clears throat> God had created us to exist in a much different fashion than we exist right now, in a much different environment. We were, we were meant to enjoy harmony with God. We were meant to enjoy harmony within ourselves. We were meant to enjoy harmony with each other and harmony with nature. But that's not the way that it is anymore. As a result of the fall, harmony was destroyed in all of these different areas. Now we have tornadoes and we have mosquitoes and we fight with our spouse and we fight with our kids and we fight with our neighbors and we'll, we'll fight with the person in front of us in line at the grocery store if they get in front of us, right? Like, that's my spot. Watch where you step. We also have this distance that was created. There's harmony that was ruined between us and our relationship with God. Now he's distant from us and we want and we want this more intense and this more tangible relationship with our God but we don't have it right now because harmony was destroyed. Everything God had created to be good and very good after Adam and Eve ate the fruit was gone. One of the first and most immediate things that was changed was our relationship with God. Harmony destroyed our relationship with God. 
As Christians, we call ourselves saved. You've probably heard this term before. Maybe you've even used it. We, we have been saved. Saved from what, R.C. Sproul says? What have you been saved from? Well, the reality is we have been saved from God. God's wrath against us is what we are saved from. And this, this moment in the garden is when that happened, when we see this happen. It was our relationship with God in the garden when we, when we ate the fruit that was immediately changed. And so while we say we're saved from you know, a future in, in hell or we're saved from our sins, the truth is we are saved from the wrath of God against us. That is what we are saved for through Jesus Christ. God's wrath against us is the real problem that we need to deal with. Genesis 3 verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. These are two people who had been in the presence of God, and they had experienced his goodness and his holiness. And yet they knew after they ate the fruit that there was something dramatically different about the condition that they were now living in. And they didn't know what to do with it. This was the moment when the fashion industry was created. It was, the, it was right here in the beginning, right in the pages of Genesis. This was the start with Adam and Eve as they were in the garden trying on different fig leaves, trying to go like, does this one make me look less guilty? Or is it this one? Is it the green or the yellow? Green, yellow. It doesn't matter, Adam. She's gonna try on 12 more before you leave the store anyway. Up until this point, Adam and Eve had enjoyed a completely transparent relationship with God. Think about that. He knew everything about them. There wasn't anything that was hidden. They were fully known, and yet they were fully loved in that. But now there was something to hide. Now they needed to cover up, or they were going to be found out. The tragic reality is, and I don't think we often read this story this way. The tragic reality is, is as they grappled with trying to cover up their new reality, the truth is they were never going to get there. I think about the emotion of this new reality as it settled in, as they began to figure out that this amazing relationship that they had enjoyed with God was now destroyed and they weren't going to be able to do anything in their power to get it back. There's this sense of struggle and this desire to have something that they were never going to get. You know, when we experience the loss of a loved one, we want them back. There is pain in that moment because we've experienced love and that love is no longer with us anymore. These people had experienced the perfect love of God. We love each other. We love our spouses. We love our friends. But that's an imperfect love. These people experienced God's perfect love and it was taken away from them as they were forced to leave the garden. This was their new reality. And no matter how much they desperately wanted to have that back, they couldn't do it. And so we get a little piece, a little taste of the loss that was experienced in the garden every time we experience the death of a loved one. And that's, that's our picture. That's the little bit of pain or the, well, I shouldn't say that. It isn't little. It's massive. And yet it's still nothing compared to losing God. And that's our picture as humanity that's meant to draw us towards God back into love because one day there's a promise that it's all going to be made new, that God will wipe every tear from our eye despite the pain and the suffering that we experience here and the trauma of that event in the garden. All of that God is going to make new. He's going to renew that all and he's going to bring us back into his loving presence and we'll forget all about the horror of living on this planet 
and the pain that comes with living with a serpent around us. One of the pastors that I listened to uh, on this passage, he said the need that we have to overcome, uh, to, to clothe ourselves, we've never been able to overcome. This need to cover ourselves, we've never been overcome. And if you think about all of you know, the tribes in the world and the different you know, uh, parts of the jungle that haven't been exposed to the rest of you know, the human population sort of thing, they're unreached groups. Even when we go and we see these people, they're wearing like loincloths, they're still covering themselves. And he said, we've never overcome that. This moment in the garden is written into all of us. Even in the most remote areas of the world, we still try to cover ourselves up even when there's no need to. I thought that was a really interesting, interesting observation. Uh, the second harmonious relationship that was destroyed in the fall was with ourselves. These bodies that we have now experience disease and pain. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, this is a TMI moment, okay? Too much information from Joel. Here we go. A couple of weeks ago, I had to go for a colonoscopy. And super fun day, by the way. If you're looking for something to do this summer, put that on your list. Um, now, I'm no stranger to these procedures. Like, I've had to do them before, thankfully, and praise the Lord. They're just for checkups. I'm not, you know, really sick or anything like that. And so... Um, so I get to go and I have these, these checkups or whatever, um, but I know something about myself. And as I was brought into the room that day to you know, get ready, they have to give you an IV and stuff. Um, I, I know my body. I have had this body my entire life. And so, so I, I, I know what's gonna happen. When they give me a needle, and they, you know, specifically the ones that go into my veins, I know that I'm gonna get really fainty and I'm gonna like have to lie down. Like, and so I talked to the nurse as if I was driving an old beat up car, even though I'm talking about my body. I'm like, yes, this thing is a piece of garbage and when you poke it, it's gonna pass out. I just know that's gonna happen. So I said to her, I said, it's probably best if you lie me down when you, when you put the IV in so that I don't pass out and we'll just avoid an awkward moment between me and you. And so, so she laid me most of the way down and she pokes me with the needle and, and I'm just like, oh, let's get this stupidness over with. And, and so then I hear her do what I hate to hear uh-oh. Like, whoa, why is it uh-oh, right? Anyway, and she's like, I missed. And I'm like, oh, great, here we go. So, so then she hits me again, right? You know, I thought I was doing really good. We made it through the first poke. No, she hits me again with the second nose. And she's a believer, by the way, as she's telling me her story about as I'm passing out. <laughs> Um, anyway, and so she pokes me again, and I'm like, that's it. I'm out of here. We'll talk to you later. So I just, I, I'm like, I need to lie down. I'm sorry. She gets me a cloth, and she calls over a more seasoned nurse. And so this seasoned nurse, she made me feel really good about myself. She's like, just wiggle your toes and think about something else. Like, if that's all it took... I would have done that years ago. I have researched this on the internet. I have tried different things. It doesn't work. If you poke me, I'm going to pass out. That's just the way it is. So, so anyway, nurse number two hits me again. And of course, she misses. So I do what I'm going to do, and I pass out again. <laughs> anyway, finally they go and they pull the anesthesiologist out of the, you know, out of the procedure room, and he gives me the IV, and he gets it, and so, you know, life is good, and they put me to sleep, and I, and I survived it. Anyway, I tell you that because there's things that I want this body to do my mind is telling my body to do, but my body won't do it. That's because there's a lack of harmony between my body and my mind. We live in these sinful, broken bodies, and our minds and our hearts, they want to do different things than our body will allow us to do. And you know what I'm talking about. 
And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably because you're a teenager, but you'll know. It's coming. <laughs> Old age will track you down. I didn't ask for all these wrinkles. They just came to me. Anyway, there is a disconnect in the harmony that we experience within ourselves. But it doesn't just stop with our physical bodies. There is a disconnect. There is a lack of harmony that is within us as well. You know, we were created to operate with God in this place of lordship in our lives. He was meant to be the center of everything for us. And when, he, when we rely on him and we have this reliance in our hearts on him, there is this sense of rightness that happens in our soul. Everything makes sense when God is at the center. But now when we've sinned and when sin has entered the picture, all of that has been thrown into disarray, into confusion. And now we have taken the center stage in our lives. That causes us to struggle to find meaning in life and purpose, to gain control of our futures, to discover who we truly are and why our lives matter. This is why there's an epidemic in our culture because of a lack of inner peace. We go to counselors and we try and figure this stuff out, but this is what's going on in our society. The problem is there's no worldly cure for the destruction of the inner harmony that happened in the fall. The original design was for us to have inner peace, inner harmony, but that was destroyed and that was a part of the fall. So all of our plans, pardon me, all of our plans to make that right aren't going to happen outside of Jesus. I was a home builder for many years and, and people would come to me and they'd want to have a big, beautiful house built for them. But it didn't matter how big or how nice that house was. It wasn't going to make them more loved or it wasn't going to make people think any differently of them. You know, a house is just, you know, wood and, and, and siding and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's never going to fill that, that void in their hearts. It was just a house. It can't fix the inner harmony that was broken. So the only way that we can fix this problem is through the Lord of, Lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. We need to put Jesus Christ at the center. This is one of the major, major problems in our world today is that we don't want to put Jesus at the center of our lives. We're still trying to figure out if we can live the life that our sinful nature is craving us to live and have Jesus. But Jesus wants to be at the center and he wants us to follow his lordship. And in his lordship, he might say, I don't want you to live like that. And then we have a choice to make. The third harmonious relationship that was destroyed in the fall was our uh, relationship with each other. Our relationship with each other. Last week, Pastor Rick shared with us from Genesis chapter two, how woman was taken out of the side of man. And I think this is really interesting because when you look at all of the other sort of created beings, you see that man was created from the dust and all of the other animals were created from the, from the dust of the earth and the ground as well. But Eve was not taken from the dust. She was taken from the side of man. And there's this sense that Eve and, and man and woman were created for each other and they were created from each other when we look at this passage. You know, if she was formed from the ground, you could understand why there would be a disconnect between man and woman, why there wouldn't be harmony because maybe she was formed from like a different mud or a different area or whatever, but that's not what we are shown in scripture. She is taken from the man and she isn't taken from the bottom of his foot. It's not a toenail clipping. It's not from his back end. She is taken from his side. That wasn't really meant to be a joke. <laughs> 
that, but she, she wasn't taken from these areas of his body. She was taken from his side, near his heart, near his vital organs. She was taken from the side to show us that she would be beside him, that they would walk through life together. She would be his helpmate. In the beginning, they were created in harmony to work with each other and for each other. Now, obviously we know man and woman are different. But our differences are meant to be complementary to each other. That is why God made her, because no other suitable helper could be found. He paraded, God paraded all these animals in front of Adam, and nothing was good enough until Eve was created. They were meant to have harmony. They were created to be together. But that all changed in the Garden of Eden. And now there is this imbalance in our relationships and we see this in these verses but in the beginning in Eden God created man and woman to enjoy this perfect equal and harmonious relationship you know and that's that's an amazing thing to think through but let's read Genesis 3:16 it says I will make your pains in childbirth very severe with painful labor you will give birth to children your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you now we're talking about man and woman here for a minute but I'm just going to talk about this this childbirth thing for a minute just because I really I think it's kind of interesting after the fall childbirth meant that it was going to be a much more difficult task for ladies to give birth to babies now you might think like why childbirth what does that have to do with us eating a piece of fruit there's a couple of reasons. I'm going to try and explain this as best I can. It, sometimes things make sense up here, but they don't always articulate well. So every woman, when she gives birth to a child and she experiences that pain, and the husband is there and he witnesses that pain, is a reminder of this moment that happened in the garden. It's a reminder of the fall. As we experience and see this pain, it's a reminder that we sinned and we chose to go our own way. God had an easier way planned, an easier way for life to come about, but now because we wanted to do it our own way and we stepped out in our own plan, it is going to be more, much more difficult. So it is a reminder, the pain is a reminder of this sinful moment, but it's also more than that. It also paints a picture for us of the future, of how through Jesus, new life can happen, but it isn't going to happen without pain. So sin means that life is no longer going to be an easy thing. There is going to be pain and there is going to be suffering in order for new life to be created. But through childbirth, we as humanity get this picture through childbirth that there is still hope for new life in the future. And in Jesus Christ, we see that there is still hope for humanity. And through pain, there can be new birth. And so that is kind of bringing together this moment where God kind of looks at woman and says, now it's going to be painful. New life, we had good. We had perfect. We had that new life. Now, it's good. now you're going to cause yourselves pain, and that's going to be a reminder for you that it's going to cause Jesus pain in the future. I hope I explained that all right. The second part of this verse, uh, getting back to the man and woman discussion, says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now there's lots of things that we could talk about in this passage because of this, the, the talk about man and woman and, and you know, we see this lo lots of stuff in our world and have for the past 50 or more years of the, you know, the, the, the discussion of the, we'll call it the battle of the sexes even. But when we look at this passage of scripture at its most basic level, its most 
timeless truth, we see that this harmonious relationship that God had created it to be was broken right here in the fall. And so we shouldn't be surprised that there is always this tension and that there is this war kind of going on in the world where women are having to fight for equality and, and there's discrepancy in that because, because things changed at the fall. We no longer had, had aligning goals. We had competing goals. And we see that played out now. And, and I don't say that because I'm trying to be fatalistic and say, well, let's not even bother trying. It's a result of the fall. Just let's deal with it. No, there's good in the struggle. And we can still find equality. And we can still find harmony as we work towards these things with God's help. But I mention that because, because of the fall, because of what we see here in this passage, things were Things were fundamentally altered and we shouldn't expect that it's going to be different. We don't see eye to eye anymore and that's a, that's, a, that's a result of the fall. So this is an expected thing that we should see in the world. Anyway, moving on. The final harmonious relationship that was destroyed between humans and nature. Um, what once was an easy existence, oh, pardon me, this is between, uh, did I fall behind? Yeah, sorry guys. The final relationship that was destroyed was between us and nature. You know, we were now told that there, there's going to be toil. There's going to be, it's going to be a lot of sweat now to get food. And so we read, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. These verses tell us that it's not going to be easy to be a human anymore. It's going to be a rough go just trying to get food out of the ground. As a matter of fact, we're going to beat back nature every day of our lives just trying to scrape by an existence, a survival, just to get some food out of the ground. And when we stop beating back nature, it's going to move back in and take over and it's going to take us right back into the ground. For dust we were, to dust we are going to return. We've all had jobs where we're like, oh man, I'm living for the weekend here. This is just a paycheck. Maybe that's even you right now, but that's not the way that work was in the garden. This working in the garden was this pleasing and joyful experience. It was meant to bring meaning to our life and, and the garden wasn't trying to take us over at every turn. There was harmony in the garden, but we know um, that that was destroyed as God cursed the ground. Now, those are two timeless truths that we've talked about this morning. Thankfully, even though both of those aren't great, timeless truths, it's kind of like, well, those are happy things, Joel. Uh, there's one more timeless truth that we see in Genesis chapter three. And the third one is, is that there is hope written into the pages of this story. The author is sharing with us that there is more to this story and, and he wants us to understand that even though there is a problem that was created in Genesis chapter three, that God sees that problem and he's going to restore harmony. So there are three things that we see, and I'll mention them fairly quickly here. There are three things that we see that God has done with humanity here and that there's more to the story. First, in verses eight and nine, we see that um, grace is being displayed. In verses eight, we see, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? First off, God knows what's going on here. The fact that they took of this tree and that they have been deceived has not escaped his view. 
It's not like he was on holidays and came back and he's like, what happened here? I left for two minutes. Like, that's not what happened. God knows what's going on. So as God moves through the garden and he's making noise and he's calling out to them, he's showing them grace. We see and we know from the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 33 that no human is able to look upon the face of God and live. So as God is moving through the garden, he's making noise. He's giving Adam and Eve the chance to hide. He's showing them grace because to be in his presence probably would have ended their life. So this is a warning that God shows to them because, and it's, it's, a, it's a warning for us too. And it kind of lets us know that, oh, maybe God doesn't want them to be destroyed. Maybe there is hope for us because God is giving them a chance here. The second sign we see is in verse 15. And it says, we are, we are showing um, that there is a promise given. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first appearance of the gospel in the Bible. We see it right here because there's this prophecy for the serpent, what his future is going to look like. And there's also the future of the woman's offspring given. One of the woman's offspring is going to crush the head of the serpent. She, he will deal a fatal blow to the serpent and the serpent's nature in the world. But in that process of dealing that fatal blow, the serpent is going to strike out and it is going to wound this woman's offspring. Jesus was wounded by Satan as Jesus crushed the work and the deeds of Satan on the cross. But by Jesus' wounds, we are healed because he was not destroyed. And finally, the last sign of hope that we see is in verse 21 and is a picture of our future. A picture of our future. Uh, verse 21 reads, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. These weren't plant-based clothing. You know, the Bible tells us these aren't fig leaves. Like, these were skin. And so where did this skin come from, right? God had to sacrifice something in order to cover the shame of Adam and Eve so that they could go out into this world and they could be covered. And this is a picture for the believers into, into the future. And we see this fulfillment in Revelation chapter 7. As believers, we are given robes in Revelation chapter 7. We are told that we are given white robes to wear. And these are to cover our shame. And they, are only, they can only do that because they have been purified by the sacrifice that God has given through the blood of Jesus. In the garden, God covers Adam and Eve with these skins through sacrifice. And in the future, our sins and our, our past deeds and all that are going to be covered by this white robe, which is supplied and has, been, and has been given to us and been purified by the sacrifice of Jesus. Temporary covering to cover shame, permanent covering for all time. Right here in the beginning of it all, God is showing us what is eventually going to have to take place in the future, to make, and he's going to make it all happen. This isn't something we have to do. God's going to make this happen. We are going to be covered. Our shame is going to be dealt with. And even in the midst of this tragic story, God is signaling to us, there is hope. The worship team and our prayer teams can come up now. You guys can come and join me on the stage. But we're going to close off on a song. But if you have been feeling in life that you have been missing out on the harmony that God had created for us to live in, um, maybe either between you and God, you know that relationship isn't where it should be, or maybe within yourself, you know that there's something broken in there that you want God to fix, or maybe between you and someone else, you understand that this is a result of the fall, 
The reason we experience the lack of harmony is because of the fall. But the cool thing is we can reach out to God and we can acknowledge, God, this is a place where harmony is not happening in my life. And I, and I know that you can do better. We can reach out to the one who created us. And so I'd invite you to do that. If the Holy Spirit has been giving you a nudge this morning in your heart or, or lately, I would challenge you to respond to that. He's calling you to do it. And so we have some prayer team members here and here at the front. If, if you don't want to pray on your own, we'd be happy to pray with you and pray over you. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. It can be a short prayer. They're happy to just be with you and pray with you. If you don't want to come up for prayer, I would still challenge you. If God is calling you in your heart to explore the harmony that he has for you through Jesus Christ, bow your head in prayer to him this morning and do that. Be faithful as he calls you. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for um, the story that we hear. Even though it's a tragedy, God, that you bring good out of tragedy as we're even reminded as we sang, it is well this morning. That even out of incredible tragedy, you can bring glory to your name. So we pray, God, that you would restore some of the harmony that was lost in the fall in our lives and in our hearts. And where you're calling us, God, I pray that we would all be faithful to respond to that calling. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.